The Heart of Christ in Heaven Toward Sinners on Earth by Thomas Goodwin The gracious disposition and tender affection of Christ in his human nature, now in glory, to his members under all sorts of infirmities, either of sin or misery. Introduction After describing the remarkable and profound actions of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his obedience leading to death, resurrection, ascension to heaven, seated at God's right hand in intercession for us, which have been thoroughly discussed, I will now present this subsequent discourse. It pertains to the heart of Christ as he presently resides in heaven, seated at God's right hand and interceding for us. It reveals how his heart is affected and filled with gracious dispositions towards sinners on earth who approach him, how willing he is to receive them how prepared he is to welcome them, and how tenderly he pities them in all their weaknesses, be it their sins or their misfortunes. The purpose and benefit of this discourse is to embolden and encourage believers to approach the throne of grace more confidently, seeking the aid of such a compassionate Savior and High Priest. By understanding how sweetly and tenderly his heart inclines towards them, even in his glorious state, they can overcome the significant obstacle that remains unseen but impedes their path to faith. It is the notion that, since Christ is now absent and exalted to a position of immense glory seated at God's right hand, they are unsure of how to approach Him freely with hopeful expectation to secure their salvation. It's those unfortunate sinners who were once physically present with Him on earth. If only we had the opportunity, they think, to converse with him during his earthly days, just like Mary Peter and his other disciples did, we would have felt confident in approaching him and receiving anything from him. After all, they witness him as a man much like themselves who possess meekness and gentleness. At that time he took on the burden of sin and experienced various forms of suffering. But now he has ascended to a distant realm adorned with glory and immortality, and we are uncertain how this transformation might have affected his heart. The aim of this discourse is, therefore, to assure humble souls that his heart, in terms of compassion and mercy, remains unchanged from his time on earth. He continues to intercede with the same compassionate heart as he did before, displaying the same meekness, gentleness, and willingness to be entreated and showing tenderness in his innermost being. Consequently, they can approach him with fairness regarding their salvation with hope and on terms as accessible as if they had been present with him on earth, maintaining a close familiarity with him in all their needs. This knowledge brings immense comfort and encouragement to those who have relinquished all other pursuits in favor of a life of faith and whose souls yearn for a deep and intimate communion with their Savior Christ. Now I'll present two types of demonstrations that can aid our faith in this manner. The first being more external and outward, and the second more internal and inward. The former demonstrates that it is indeed true, while the latter delves into the reasons and justifications for his truth. First, let us explore these external demonstrations. They are derived from various instances and actions of Jesus during his different phases, his farewell before his death, his resurrection, ascension, and his current position at God's right hand. 
I will guide you through the same topics discussed in the previous treatise, albeit with a different purpose. I will extract observations from his words and actions during those significant periods that directly persuade us of the manner at hand, namely, that now, in heaven, his heart remains as graciously disposed toward sinners who approach him as it was when he walked the earth. To establish a foundation or introduction for these initial demonstrations, I will cite the following scripture. As for the latter demonstrations, I will employ another scripture more suitable for that portion of this discourse. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, John 13, verse 1. Demonstrations from Christ's last farewell to his disciples. 1. It was a considerable time before Christ revealed to his disciples that he would be leaving them and ascending to heaven. For in John 16, verse 4, he mentions that he had refrained from telling them from the beginning. However, when he finally begins to disclose this information, he shares an abundance of his heart with them all at once, not only expresses his current feeling towards them, but also reveals how his heart will be towards them when he is in his glorious state. To understand this, let us briefly examine his final actions and the sermon he delivered during the Last Supper is documented and recounted by the evangelist John. We will find that the purpose behind Christ's extensive discourses spanning from John chapter 13 to 18 revolves around this very manner. Rather than providing a commentary on these passages, I will simply highlight concise observations that particularly emphasize this theme. The words I have selected as a text serve as the introduction to all the subsequent discourse that follows, including the account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. In his subsequent sermon, this introduction sets the stage and provides a summary of the entire discourse. The preface states, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And when supper was ended, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and washed his disciples' feet. This preface was intentionally included by the evangelist to offer a glimpse into the heart of Christ revealing his state at the time of his departure. It sheds light on the subsequent events and provides an interpretation for them. Its purpose is to demonstrate the affection he would have for them in heaven. By sharing Christ's thoughts and unveiling the condition of his heart during that time, this preface sets a stage for everything that follows. He begins by describing what was in Christ's thoughts and reflections. Jesus deeply contemplated the fact that he was soon to depart from this world. The text states, Jesus knew, indicating his active contemplation, that he should depart to the Father. He also pondered the imminent installation into the glory that rightfully belonged to him. As he continues in John 13, verse 3, Jesus, knowing, meaning he was actively considering, that the Father had given him all things into his hands, signifying that he would possess all authority in heaven and earth as soon as he set foot in heaven. Amidst the thoughts, he tells us that he proceeded to wash his disciples' feet. 
Heaven first contemplated his destination and his future role. Secondly, amidst all these elevated thoughts, what was Christ's primary concern? It was not only solely focused on his own glory, although it is mentioned that he considered it to magnify his love for us. His heart was primarily directed towards his own, John 13 verse 1 states, having loved his own, using a term that signifies the closest proximity, endearment, and intimacy based on ownership, the elect, or Christ's own, an integral part of himself, not merely his possessions, as seen in John 1 verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The word used here indicates that he considers them his own, not as objects, but as individuals. In this context, he refers to them as his own in a deeper sense, his own children, his own members, his own spouse, his own flesh. He recognizes that while he was to depart from the world, they would remain in it. Hence, it is explicitly added which were in the world, signifying their continued presence in this world. He also had others who were his own in the world to which he was going, namely the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Hebrews 12, verse 23, whom he had not yet seen. One might assume that when he was contemplating his departure from this world, his thoughts would revolve around Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom he was going to join. However, his care extended even further to his own who were to remain in this world, a world filled with much evil, as he himself acknowledges in John 17, verse 15, encompassing both sin and suffering, which would inevitably defile and afflict them. Despite his heart being consumed with thoughts of its own glory, he extends his compassion towards them. It is said, having loved his own, he loved them to the end, indicating the constancy of his love and what it will be when Christ is in his glory. To the end conveys the idea of his perfection according to Chrysostom. Having commenced his love for them, he will bring it to its fullness and completion. And to the end also signifies forever. In the Greek, the phrase is sometimes used in this sense, and the evangelist employs it here in alignment with the scripture in Psalm 103, verse 9, where it states, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever, is translated. However, in the original text it says he will not keep his anger to the end. Therefore, the purpose of this statement is to demonstrate that Christ's heart and love towards him will endure forever even when he is departed to his father, just as it had been during his earthly presence, because they are his own. Having loved them, he does not change or alter, and thus his love for them will be everlasting. And thirdly, to provide a tangible testimony regarding his love for them in heaven, the evangelist illustrates that amidst his profound contemplation of approaching glory, in the supreme position he would hold, Jesus took water in a towel and washed his disciples' feet. This intention becomes apparent when we observe the connection in the second verse. It is stated that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, then, John 13, verse 4, he rose from supper. 
laid aside his garments and took a towel and tied it around his waist. After that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. It is evident that the evangelist's purpose is to highlight that when Christ's thoughts were consumed by his glory and he considered it to the utmost, even then, and on that occasion, amidst those thoughts, he humbly washed his disciples' feet. The significance of Christ's act was to demonstrate that while in heaven he would be unable to perform such visible outward displays of his heart by engaging in humble acts of service. Thus, by undertaking this act, while contemplating its glory, he indicated that he would willingly do for them when he fully possessed that glory, such as the magnitude of his love for them. A similar expression by Christ can be found in Luke 12, verses 36 and 37, further affirming his intention here and reflecting his true heart in heaven. In Luke 12, verse 36, he compares himself to a bridegroom who is preparing to ascend to heaven for a wedding feast. While the servants remain on earth, eagerly waiting for his return, understanding that they may grow weary from the wait, Christ adds, Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. This does not imply that Christ currently serves those who are seated with him or will serve them in the future, but rather, it is an expression of overwhelming love and the surpassing joy that awaits us an experience beyond our expectations. It is an extraordinary description to convey that the Lord would serve his servants and attend to those who eagerly anticipate him. This serves to reveal his heart and what he is willing to do for them. Therefore, you can observe what his heart was before his ascension to heaven, even amidst contemplations of his glory. Furthermore, you can see what it is after he has entered heaven. Having been exalted with all of its glory, still willingly washing the feet of poor sinners, and serving those who come to him and eagerly await his presence. Now fourthly, what was the significance of his act of washing their feet? It served as an example of mutual love and humility, while also symbolizing the cleansing of their sins. This interpretation is given by Jesus himself in John 13, verse 8. It is true that now in heaven he cannot physically wash their feet, but he conveys a message that those sinners who come to him in his glory will have their sins washed away. It's stated in Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. He loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, a wrinkle. This act serves as a representation and declaration of his intentions. We can glean the main purpose from his actions during this farewell event. Let us now examine the overarching theme of his lengthy sermon delivered on that occasion. We will discover that his primary aim is to further assure his disciples of what his heart will be towards them. This understanding provides another demonstration. It is not necessary to delve into every detail, but it is undeniable that Christ's efforts to reassure the hearts of his disciples, as well as all believers, exceed the efforts of any loving husband trying to comfort his spouse during his absence. 
It is essential to remember that whatever Christ said to his disciples applies to us as well, as implied in John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Just as his prayer was for all believers, his words were also intended for them. First, he reveals to them what his attitude will be towards them and how he will be mindful of them in heaven through the task he declares he is going there to fulfill for their sake. Regarding this, note, first, did he lovingly inform them in advance, demonstrating care and tenderness akin to a husband to a wife? Moreover, he speaks with utmost transparency, ensuring that nothing is hidden from them. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. John 16, verse 7. Secondly, he tells them that his departure is entirely for their benefit and happiness. I go to send you a comforter, he assures them, for the time when they are in this world and to prepare a place for you, John 14, verse 2. For when they depart from this world, in my Father's house are many mansions, he explains, and I go to prepare a place for you, assuring that he will secure and keep their places until they arrive. Once again, he communicates with openness and candor. If it were not so, I would have told you. They can trust him. He would not deceive them even for all the glory in the place he is going to. Who could resist such sincerity and vulnerability of heart? Thirdly, the significance of the task itself, which is so greatly beneficial for us and our happiness, further reinforces the assurance. In fact, Christ himself draws from it an argument for the continuance of his love for them, as stated in John 14, verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, indicating that if that is his mission, they need not doubt his love when he is there, for all the glory of the place will never cause him to forget his purpose. While on earth, he did not forget any of the reasons for which he came into the world. Should I not be about my father's business, he declared, even as a child, Luke 2 verse 49, and indeed he fulfilled it to the utmost by fulfilling all righteousness. Surely, he will not forget any of the tasks assigned him in heaven, which are even more delightful. As explained in the, huh, as explained in the previous discourse from Hebrews 6, verse 20, he is entered as a forerunner, a harbinger, to secure places forth there, And even if he could forget us, our names are all inscribed in heaven around him, continually before his eyes. Not only through God's election, as stated in Hebrews 12, 22-24, you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God to judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. But Christ himself marks him afresh with his blood. Over each mansion he secures. Yes, he carries their names written in his heart. Just as a high priest carried the names of the twelve tribes on his breast when entering the Holy of Holies, he sits in heaven to ensure that no one else occupies their places above them. 
so to speak. Thus, in 1 Peter 1 verse 4, salvation is said to be kept in heaven for you, specifically reserved for them by Jesus Christ. Once the fallen angels held position there, but they were replaced by others, just as the land of Canaan was taken from the Canaanites. The reason for this is that they lacked a Christ to intercede for them, unlike us. Secondly, to demonstrate his attentiveness to them and all other believers when he is in his glory, he informs them that once he has completed the necessary preparations in heaven for them and the entire elect who are to come, he intends to return them himself. It's stated in John 14, verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. This is a pure expression of love as he could have chosen to send for them instead. However, he desires to personally come for them, even when he is at the pinnacle of his glory in heaven. He will temporarily leave the splendor to return to his beloved. And for what purpose? To see her. I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. Secondly, to fetch her, as is mentioned in John 14, verse 3. I will come again and receive you to myself. He conforms to the customs of bridegrooms, for despite his greatness, no lover can surpass him in displaying true love. It is customary for bridegrooms, after preparing everything in their father's house, to personally come and fetch their brides, rather than sending others, as it is a time for love. Love descends better than it ascends. And so does the love of Christ, who is indeed love itself. Therefore he descends to us himself. I will come again and receive you to myself, says Christ, so that where I am you may be also. The latter part of his statement provides a reason and reveals his complete affection. It is as if he were saying, the truth is, I cannot live without you. I will never be at peace until I have you with me so that we may never part again. That is a reason. Heaven and my Father's company cannot contain me if I do not have you with me. My heart is so devoted to you, and if I possess any glory, you will share in it. It is stated in John 14, verse 19, Because I live, you also will live. It is a reason and also a solemn affirmation. As I live, it's an oath of God. And because I live, declares Christ, he stakes his life on it and desires to live on no other terms. He shall see his offspring, Isaiah 53, verse 10. Furthermore, to express the yearnings and longings of his heart for them during that time, he assures them that it will not be long before he returns to them. As stated in John 16, verse 16, a little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. To not seeing him does not refer to the short period of absence during his death and burial, but rather to the time after his final ascension, forty days after his resurrection, when he would no longer be visible on earth until the day of judgment. Yet, he says, a little while and you will see me again, specifically at the day of judgment. In Hebrews 10, verse 37, it is written, Yet, a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, as little as little may be. 
although it may seem long in itself. It is as brief as possible in terms of his desire, with no delay in coming. He will not remain a moment longer than necessary. He waits only until he has completed all our tasks in heaven. Through his intercession, the doubling of the phrase, coming, he will come, indicates his intense desire to come, and that his mind is constantly focused on it. He is always coming and can hardly be kept away. This Hebrew phrase also signifies urgency, intensity, and determination in an action, such as I have earnestly waited, I have fervently desired. Similarly, coming he will come, and not content with these expressions of longing he adds, it will not delay all to signify the infinite ardor of his heart towards his chosen ones below, and his desire to have all his elect in heaven with him. He will not tarry a minute longer than necessary. He waits only until, through his intercession throughout all ages, he has prepared a place for each saint, so that he may host them all together and have them all around him. Thirdly, he expresses his affections towards them during his absence through the careful provision he makes and the arrangements he puts in place for their comfort. In John 14, verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. That's what the word means. I will not abandon you like fatherless and friendless children, left in a state of confusion. My father and I only have one true friend who resides in the embrace of both of us and proceeds from both of us, the Holy Spirit. In the meantime, we'll send him to you, just as a loving husband would entrust his wife to his dearest friend during his absence. That's what Christ does. In John 14, verse 16, he says, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter. And in John 16, verse 7, he says, I will send him to you. Discomforter first will be a better source of comfort to you than I can be in this particular form of dispensation that binds me to you while I am on earth. As he intimates in John 16, verse 7, it is advantageous, he says, for me to go away. For if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come. The Comforter, by virtue of his role, will comfort you more effectively than I could with my physical presence in his spirit, as the apostle describes as both the earnest of heaven and the greatest sign and pledge of Christ's love ever given, a gift that the world cannot receive. Yet, secondly, all the comfort he provides during that time will come from the expression of my heart towards you, just as he does not come of his own accord, but is sent by me, as stated in John 16, verse 7. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. As mentioned in John 16, verse 13, and in John 16, verse 14, he says, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. I will purposely send him to take my place and fulfill my role to you, my bride, my spouse, and he will reveal to you, if you are willing to listen and not grieve him, nothing but stories of my love. As it is said, he will glorify me specifically to you because I am already glorified in heaven. All his words in your hearts will serve to exalt me and enhance my worth and love for you. 
and he will delight in doing so. He can come from heaven in an instant, whenever he pleases, bringing you fresh news of my thoughts and sharing with you the very ideas I have of you at the very moment. He tells you what they are while I am still contemplating them. That's why in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12 it is said that by having the Spirit we have the mind of Christ. For he dwells in the heart of Christ and also in ours, conveying to us what Christ's thoughts are and presenting our prayers and faith to Christ. So you will have my heart assuredly and swiftly as if I were physically present with you. The Spirit will continually stir your hearts, either with my love for you, your love for me, or both. If either is present, you can be certain of my love. And although you currently have the Spirit dwelling in your hearts, as stated in John 14, verse 17, after my ascension, He will dwell in you to an even greater extent. As mentioned in the following verses, On that day, as mentioned in John 14, verse 20, You will know, through His guidance, that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He will inform you when I am in heaven that there is a true connection between you and me and a genuine affection in me towards you, just as there is between my Father and me. It will be impossible to sever this bond and to divert my heart away from you, just as it is impossible to separate my Father's heart from me or mine from my Father. 